So here's what I need you to do. You will be using five to six different colors of highlighters. I'll be telling you exactly what to do with those highlighters, but it's important to understand that I don't want your friend to get back a paper that's just full of highlights and no feedback, right? So every time you highlight, you also need to accompany that with very clear feedback, whether you thought what they did was effective or they're missing something or they need to improve something. It needs to, and every time you highlight, you need to write a little line next to it and then a note in the margins about what your feedback is, okay? So first thing, what you need to check in their little essay, and I can't stress this enough, I don't want you to read it yet. Don't read their essay yet. I'm just gonna have you look for strategic things. I'm gonna take you through what an actual grader would do with an essay like this, okay? So the first thing you're gonna do, turn to their essay page, don't read it yet. Turn to the first page of their essay. Don't read it yet. First thing I need you to do is check, just visually check that there are four clear and distinct paragraphs. It doesn't matter if they indent them, it doesn't matter if they skipped a space to indicate a paragraph, but it shouldn't just be a wall of writing. It should be clear that they've organized their ideas in some way, shape, or form. If it's not clear, you need to write a note to them now saying that there should be distinct paragraphs to help organize and compartmentalize the information in their essay. So somewhere in the margins, if they're not compartmentalizing that information in some way, they need feedback on that, okay? Because it needs to be clear that there are paragraph separations. Remember, paragraphs should have a topic, a topic sentence and stick to one main idea, yes? Okay, next thing is that at the beginning of this essay, it, it, it's not like a long form essay. With these timed essays, your introduction can be two sentences. Your introduction should serve two purposes. It should give very minimal context, and then it should give a very clear and defensible thesis. So let's talk about that context first. And if you're looking here on this red sheet here, that'll help you kind of solidify in your mind the components that we're looking for, okay? So the first thing is we need context. The context needs to, it, context just means background info, right? Leading in info. So they should somewhere in the first sentence of their essay, I don't care what order it comes in, they should do several things. They should give the name of the author that they're studying, full name spelled correctly and capitalized correctly. They should give the name of the work that they are covering, which is Jainer. And in writing, in MLA, there's very serious rules about how you would deal with that title, but in writing, they should capitalize it and we can underline it. It should not be in quotation marks because quotation marks denote a smaller work that's part of a larger whole. So if they use quotation marks, that's a no-no, write them a note, okay? And then, wait, listen to the whole thing before we go. So we're doing author name should be spelled correctly. You don't need to do the umlaut above the E if you don't want to, but I mean, it's fun to have a chance to, yeah, I mean, come on, we're nerds. So um, the name of the author, the name of the text, and the type of text. A book is not a type of text. It's a novel, right? So in her novel, Jane Eyre, and it's important that they punctuate all of that correctly. So there's, if you're saying um, Charlotte Bronte in her novel, Jane Eyre, there's two, there's an introductory phrase and an a positive phrase in there. You don't need to know what that means. You just need to know that there's three commas in that one little statement. Okay. So make sure that there should, we, we can look at commas in a second, but just know that when you're setting up an introductory phrase, that's listing a whole bunch of things, there should be a plethora of commas. 
Yes. So check that they have that information. And then, so if they're giving a sentence like Charlotte Bronte in her novel, Jane Eyre, explores ideas of redemption that can apply to all of society. That's a contextual sentence, right? So they should give the author the work type, the title of the work, and then just super breezy contextual background information. So that should be the first sentence. So check and see what they have there. If they don't have those, so in your first highlighter color, it doesn't matter what color it is, highlight their first context sentence. If they're missing anything, you need to write a line to where it should go, tell them what they're missing. Just the first sentence in one specific color. Highlight the whole sentence, whole context sentence. Oh, I didn't realize that was your dominant hand. You poor thing. So never should we highlight without accompanying it with clear feedback. So then get out your writing utensil and write. Looks like you have all the components here. Good job. You're missing the work type. The work type isn't a book. It's a novel. We'd like some more contextual information about what the essay is going to be, about the book title. Any type of background information is fine there. You're just easing the reader right on in there. So I should see pencil writing or pen writing somewhere around that first highlight. Did you do that, CJ? I couldn't tell. Oh, good. Okay, just check it. Okay, so now this is one of the hardest things to do in an essay, right? And so when for IB, they, it, it, this appeals to two different rubric scores on the IB essay rubric grading scale. And for AP, it's, a one, it's, it's either a you have it or you do not have it. And if you don't get that point, that point for the defensible thesis, you don't pass the essay usually, right? So defensible thesis, it's clear that it's, it's important that you understand what that means. A defensible thesis doesn't mean that you did defend it. It means, can it be defended? So you're just getting a grade for whether or not the thesis could be defended. So ask yourself, when you read their thesis sentence, ask yourself, could somebody argue against this or for this? Is it arguable? If they're just saying that Jane Eyre is a really nice book, yeah, that's arguable, but does it have anything to do with the actual prompt itself? So it has to be a thesis that responds to the prompt the prompt was specifically talking about whether or not Rochester was redeemable and what Bronte had to say about society through that character of Rochester, right? So did it respond to the prompt and is it defensible? So it's fine if you wanna ask me on this one, but I need you to think about it for yourself, ask a table mate first before you ask me about it. So in a second color, I don't care what second color that is, highlight what you think their thesis is. And then, is it defensible? Is the thesis even there? Is it a clear thesis? Does it respond to the prompt? That's the kind of feedback that you need to be giving in writing. So in a second color, highlight what you think their thesis is. And if they wrote too much, if they're spending time in the introduction writing a big old fat novel before they even answer the question, no, no, we're looking for two to three sentences in this introduction, nothing fancy. So if they took too much time in that introduction, they 
spent their time on the wrong thing. But that's a really good lesson to learn. So their introductory paragraph is a big old fat mama. Write them a note and tell them it doesn't need to be. That's not what that paragraph's for, right? Their time should be spent in those body paragraphs defending their evidence. That's where the effort should go. That's, that's where all the points are in the grading scales for these tests. So I should see two highlights. So can you write them a note that I don't really need this? They could really chop that down, right? Yeah, same with that. You guys just, it's this beautiful context that I'm seeing on some of these papers, making your introduction big and fat, that's going to be great for the HLSA because it's really important to remember that we're using different writing skills in a timed, pressurized situation than we're using in a long-form writing situation. And that's why I think the IB is beautiful because it, does, it doesn't just test your timed writing skills because I don't know if those are useful over time, right? But it also tests your ability to write something developed over time, which I think is what you're going to be doing in college. It's more applicable to your future. Yes, dear? Um, uh, should the thesis, like, state which side? Yes, it should be, take a very clear side. It should explicitly state whether Rochester is redeemable. And here's where you would set up that sophistication point. Both AP and IB have this idea of sophistication. These, these literary analysis essays are meant for you to not analyze this in a vacuum, you're supposed to always talk about the work as a whole is, is the phrasing that they use. So basically, Jane Eyre wasn't just written to be a nice story. She definitely wrote Jane Eyre as a commentary on society, right? She definitely had a message for the, her readers that was greater than just Rochester or just Jane. She definitely had something to say on a large scale. So. She, Rochester, we're not analyzing Rochester just to be Rochester. We're analyzing Rochester because through Rochester, Bronte had something to share with us. She had a message. There was a theme there, right? So if in your defensible thesis, you set up a discussion of the work as a whole, you maintain it throughout the essay, then you're pulling at that sophistication thread that only one out of 100 kids get a sophistication point on their AP essay. But that could be you if you start up, start out talking about the work as a whole and then maintain that thread all the way throughout. Okay, so it doesn't have to be there, but this would be a really good part for you, a really good part of your essay to say, Charlotte Bronte presents her character, Edward Rochester, as redeemable in order to share her message with the world that everyone, no matter how unworthy, is redeemable. You see how I stated my claim for the prompt itself, and then I blew it up and started talking about society as a whole. That's where we would set ourselves up for a sophistication point. Yes? Okay. We did the introduction, you guys. That's really all that has to be in there. Okay? But these are super, super important skills. So now, go ahead and check to see if your friend has done three body paragraphs or two. I recommend two, and here's why. The scoring systems reward you for doing less better than more poorly. So let me state that again, right? If you do two supporting points to support your thesis, but you support those points beautifully, it's still better to do that than try to accomplish three supporting points and support them in a mediocre way. So it's better to go hard on two points 
than medium on three points. Does that make sense? So that's why I recommend a four paragraph essay structure. You're supporting two main points and with each of those main points you're doing at least two pieces of evidence. Do you see why? Yes dear? Uh, is that just a recommendation from you or is that like an AP? It is a data-based recommendation meaning that lots and lots of people have studied what scores well and that is the conclusion for sure. If you want to go for a third and for your IB essay you have 20 more minutes than AP so I'm going to prepare you for the bigger time constraint and then you'll have some wiggle room for IB but if you want to go for more on the IB I would recommend it especially for paper one which is what you'll be doing so we'll talk about that later but first I want to get you into this and see the beauty of this simplified structure and then I'll tell you how and when to add in that extra paragraph if you feel like you have time and it's only for certain people who aren't still focusing on the basics does that make sense okay so Here's what I need you to do again before you read anything. I need you to get a third highlighter color out. Before you read anything, I need you to go through and select their evidence. And by evidence, we mean proof from the text that they then analyze. So they should, because I set you up for this three class periods before you actually wrote this, right? I asked you to find evidence and cited evidence, right? So for every piece of evidence, they should ideally use a quote from the book and cite it in parentheses. I don't recommend putting the citation in the sentence because I think it sounds clunky. On page 364 of Jane Eyre, Rochester said, right? I think it's clunky. But if you said Rochester said, then the quote, and then put the citation for where it came from in parentheses, I just feel like that's smoother right but it doesn't matter as long as you've cited where it comes from I don't care how you do it and neither does AP or IB however on the HLSA when we're using a formal citation format they super duper care how you do it and we'll talk about that later okay but for now as long as they've said where it comes from it doesn't matter how they did it I recommend parenthetical which is in parentheses at the end of the sentence but it can be whatever it is. So they should have a minimum of four pieces of evidence, a minimum of two pieces per evidence for each body paragraph. So go highlight just their evidence. Highlight just their evidence in one color. Technically, if they're paraphrasing from the story, that still counts as evidence, but I don't recommend doing that because a lot of students veer into summary, which the graders super duper hate. And it's hard for students to differentiate between summarizing and analyzing. And most people are summarizing when they think they're analyzing. So using a quote from the text, highlight the quote that they use. Yes, dear. If, it, if it's a paraphrase and they're using a moment from, that's still evidence from the text. That's great. So highlight it. So when you're highlighting their evidence, also highlight their citation because that's part of it. When you're highlighting their evidence, also highlight their citation.
word did I choose here? Can I see this for a sec? Okay, so you should have found four pieces of evidence. Just skim for the evidence, right? Highlighting, you should see four highlights in that one color of their evidence. And I need you to look at that evidence and say, does that evidence actually support the main idea of that paragraph? and the big fat mama thesis that they said. Does their selection of evidence actually do what they wanted it to do? Because if they selected evidence from the book, it's not enough just to use any old line from the book. The line that they use from the book has to be directly supporting and it has to be directly relevant to the topic of that paragraph and the topic of the essay as a whole. So give them some feedback there and say, hey, I don't think this evidence means what you think it means. Or the way you explained it, I don't think it actually supported. So, or if they didn't cite their evidence, make sure to give them a little message and a little note that they need to cite it. Or if you found evidence and you think it was good evidence, say, I think this was effective. That's the kind of notes that you'll put in the margins there. All right, so next I need you to go look around that evidence that you just identified, right? You're going to look above the evidence. And I know that it's, this is going to feel formulaic, what I'm asking you to do. But I'm asking you to learn it by my formula, and then you can expand if you become a titan. But I'll let you know when that happens, <laughs> okay? I'll let you know if you're a titan. And until I tell you that, you got to follow this formula because this formula is tried and true, okay? So the movie that I had you, the video that I had you watch about integrating evidence covers these two parts of what we call a quote or an evidence sandwich. Every piece of evidence that you use must follow this formula, zero exceptions. So if your friend tried to introduce two pieces of evidence and then use the rest of the paragraph to explain that evidence, that's a no-no. Because what the biggest point value for these essays is you doing that evidence justice before you move on to a new idea. So you must follow this formula for every piece of evidence that you use. And the formula goes like this. You need to tell me, just like when we talk about, um, what was his friend's name? Dogmar. Dogmar. I was going to say Hobar, but I was like, it's not right. Not right. Dogmar, right? We have to introduce that evidence, give it context, and we have to specifically introduce them to friends instead of just plopping them in the room and walking away, right? So if your friend has a piece of evidence that begins a sentence, that's effectively plopping it and walking away. So when you're giving, you need to integrate a quote into your own writing, which means that you need to start out with an introductory phrase for that quote. So it would be something like, This is really plebeian, but we're just going to try this. This is an introductory phrase, right? Should be a comma there, right? And then I would do a citation, page 12. Okay, so 
an introductory phrase is very simply a phrase that begins the sentence so your quote doesn't begin the sentence. And it can be anything you want, right? Simply giving an introduction, a comma, then beginning your quotation, and your citation should go outside quotation marks, but before the punctuation. We're going to talk about that a lot later, right? So here's your citation. That's how it should go. So this is what I mean by introductory phrase. And then before this, you should say, when he was meeting... Jane, for the first time, comma, Rochester said. So this is my context, right? First, you have to give what was happening at the time. Then who said it? Put your introductory phrase in there as you will. Then the actual evidence. So here's what we did here. We just did the first two buttons. It's really quick and simple for what we're trying to illustrate here. But you need to give context. Tell me what was happening at the time of the quote right? Then give me an introductory phrase so the quote just doesn't just pooped out right at the beginning of a sentence, right? You have to give an introductory phrase to integrate it into your own writing. Then give me the quote and you got to make sure to cite it before you're done with that middle button. And we're creating a sandwich. The most important part is that evidence, right? But you got to give it a lean in. Yes? So take a look and highlight in, a, in your fourth color that you're looking for, right? In your fourth color, highlight above. It should be above. They shouldn't have tried to give the quote and then give context. No, no. Maybe if you're a titan, you can do that. But none of us are there yet. Well, you get it. So you, before the quote, you need to see context and an introductory phrase. Highlight it. If it's not there, tell them it needs to go there. But their context shouldn't veer into what we call summarizing. Right? You need to say what's going on, but don't do it in three sentences. Right? Because then it starts to be summary and not analysis, and we don't want that. So you're looking before every quote, before every piece of evidence. You're highlighting in that fourth color. Did they give context? Did they give an introductory phrase or did they just try to barf out evidence without giving any padding for it in the sentence? So you're looking for that before every piece of evidence. And make sure you tell them whether or not you thought it was effective. Because it's got to go in this order, in this formula, no exceptions from here on out. with an E. <laughs> so in my opinion, the first two parts of this sandwich are easy. Yeah? So I want you to, th I'm going to like mix my metaphors here. Like we're in a sandwich metaphor and I'm going to give a new metaphor. Have you guys ever seen my Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yes. 
And in it, the mom, the grandma was like, my husband may be the head of the family, but I'm the neck and I move the head wherever I want it to whatever direction I want it. You get it, right? Here's what you're doing when you're using a quote, right? You take that quote, pretend like the quote is your head, right? It's super important. It bears a lot of weight, right? But you and the bottom bun, Carlene, I need you to hear this, honey. Carly, I need you to hear this. You and the bottom bun are the neck, right? You in your commentary, your elaboration, your examination, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same thing. If the quote is the head, you and your commentary are the neck. And you have to very clearly direct that quote so it supports your thesis. And that's the bulk of where your points come from on your essays for both IB and AP. They have the same standard that you need to hit. So if this took one sentence and this took two sentences, this should take five sentences. Five. And a lot of times students are like, I know this needs to be five sentences. I don't know what else to say though. So what I'm going to do is rephrase the same sentence a few times. And that's going to look like I'm analyzing it. It does not. Right? I know your BS, right? Because I used to do that, right? Sometimes you can get away with it, but most of the time, people are going to be able to differentiate between you just rephrasing the same idea over and over again. So here's a way that I think is helpful to think about this. The first thing that you need to do is tell me how that quote supports just the main idea of the paragraph that it's in. Remember you have a topic sentence for that paragraph? Tell me how does that quote just support your, how, how does it support that one supporting point? That should take two, three sentences, right? And then separately, tell me how that quote, tell me what it means and how it supports your overall thesis. And that's you always tying stuff back to the thesis. It'll give you line of reasoning points. It'll, it'll make sure that you're always, you're never deviating from your line of reasoning. So after their quote, just keep in mind, they could use, I also like it when people use a transitional phrase. I have something in my hand, so phrase into the commentary. I think it sounds great. So after they gave their evidence, Rochester said, yes, you do only play a little, right? Then I would say, this shows that. That's my transitional phrase, and it's signaling to the reader, I'm going to now tell you what that evidence means, okay? So here's my brilliance about to happen. Or this explains that some sort of transitional phrase that takes you from the quote into the commentary. Love it. And I'm going to give you a whole page of transitional phrases, and you're going to love it, but we're not there yet, right? So then I need you to find five to six sentences of commentary behind each of their pieces of evidence. So take out your fifth color of highlighter and highlight where after that evidence they explained it. They connected it to the topic sentence and to the thesis. Where did they examine it? Where did they expand? Where did they direct that piece of evidence to mean something, to support their ideas? That's where all the points are. This part, this bottom bun, is the difference between you passing the essay and failing the essay on these tests. That bottom button, that's the key. So highlight all of their bottom button for each piece of evidence.
and then tell them, I think this was effective. I think you could have done more to explain it here. And here's the biggest mistake people make. So stop what you're doing and look at me. Right here. Yeah. The biggest mistake people make in this part, and again, I can't stress enough, this part is where the points are made or not made. Yes? The biggest mistake that you make is assuming that your reader is connecting dots. Right? You're assuming that because Rochester said something sarcastically, that he's a sarcastic person. So you don't write that sentence. Right? Don't assume that your reader is making the connections. Assume that you have to spell everything out for them. Assume that your reader is a brilliant three-year-old. Right? Just so smart, but still needs things spelled out for them. Right? Bless you. So if they're skipping steps in their explanation, let them know. Because they're missing opportunities to be really clear and really directed with their commentary, right? If they only did two sentences, chances are they skipped some analytical steps that they were assuming that the reader should understand, but you can't assume. Brilliant three-year-old. Do, do the thing now. The paper. You did it already? Okay. Did you do it for all the pieces of evidence, though? Oh, well, that's what I was, that's what I was pointing to. I didn't give enough time for it. That's fair. And don't worry if you didn't get a chance to use all these skills, because guess when we have another time writing? Oh. I know, right? <laughs> you get a chance to solidify these skills in your mind, like right after you did it. Am I brilliant? I think so. I think so. So if they didn't finish the essay or they stopped in the middle, just grade what's there. But just know as you're filling out that rubric, you're not going to be able to give them full points because it's not complete. But again, it's okay because nobody is expected to be perfect right now. Not reasonable. So basically your body paragraphs are made up of the bottom buns for two pieces of evidence. If you do it well, you only need two pieces of great evidence. If you have time, it's better to fit a third piece of evidence in your body paragraph than it is to start a third body paragraph. Does that make sense? It's better to load up really well-written paragraphs with great evidence than it is to try to halfways do a third paragraph. Yeah? Does that make sense? Okay. And then, that should be the bulk of your body paragraph. You should have a topic sentence for the paragraph, maybe a concluding sentence for the paragraph that sums up what that paragraph was about. And then, your conclusion. So here's the thing. The conclusion is where you would earn your sophistication points or a four in the second rubric row for AP. The conclusion, if you have to, if you know that you're losing time and you're going to have to make some hard decisions, always, always, always spend more time on the body paragraphs and poop out a conclusion. Always compromise the conclusion 
and not the body paragraphs, yes? Because that's still where the bulk of your points come from. But if you want to pass this essay with a four or a five on the AP test, you need to have a gorgeous conclusion. So here's what you need to put. Your conclusion needs to accomplish two basic things. The first thing that it needs to do is restate your thesis without exactly repeating it. It can't be word for word. So restate your thesis, and this is a great time to add in that work as a whole stuff. So if you said Rochester was redeemable, tell me then how Charlotte Bronte used Rochester to speak to society on a larger scale. <coughs> this is where we start con con commenting on the work as a whole. How does your analysis speak to the work as a whole, the meaning, the message overall? So in their conclusion, first they should restate that thesis. I think it'd be a really good idea. And by thesis, I also mean claim or your position. Those are all the same things. So highlight in the sixth color, or you can start with the first color again if you only have five. Highlight them restating their thesis. They got to do that. Restate their thesis. And then, here's the part where there should be three or four sentences about how, and again, this is what we call work, focusing on the work as a whole. Remember, Rochester doesn't exist. He's not a person. He made zero choices. Zero. Who made the choices? Charlotte Bronte, Charlotte Bronte made the choices for Rochester to prove a point, to share a message, right? So this is where we don't talk about Rochester. We don't talk about his choices. We talk about Bronte's choices. Rochester is not a person. He's a choice. He's a tool. He's a device. He's a tool. He is a tool. He is a tool. In all connotations of that word, yes? So he is a device that Bronte used to share a message. So this is where you talk about, yeah, I've said that Rochester is redeemable, but what, what does Bronte have to say through that? And this is where you blow it up and you take it outside the world of the novel itself. So if Rochester, if, if a tool like Rochester is redeemable, right, then what does that say about a tool like me? What does that say about a tool like you or your mom or your mom's mom, right? What does it say? So again, we're talking about society as a whole. And I do believe Bronte's message was that even the least of those among us are redeemable, right? At least whether or not you agree with that, that's definitely what she's trying to say, right? It's true. So when you start talking about society as a whole and you blow it up past, you almost zoom out as if you were taking a picture on your phone, zoom out and include the whole world in it. What is she saying on a grand scale? That's how you crush those sophistication points in the conclusion. So if they didn't do that at all, just take a look at their conclusion and give them some feedback. If they did, in your either your second color that you used or the first color, just we're rotating them through. It doesn't matter what color, just as long as it's differentiated. Highlight anywhere they mention the work as a whole, because that's what we want. We want them to, in the conclusion, start talking about the big picture. 
What did Rochester teach us? And not Rochester, but Bronte through Rochester teach us. So now that you've read this essay, I want you to go back to the rubric page. So this is where we remember that we're being kind, not nice. Kindness is real feedback. This is a college class, right? And in a college class, we're looking to actually learn. Gone are the days when I give you a sticker and you walk away all happy. This is where we're learning, we're improving. So they're not going to be able to learn if you don't give them an accurate picture of what's happening here. Okay? So the first thing on this rubric, I hate that this is true, but AP and IB are not going towards computer-entered uh, essays anytime soon. It's all handwritten. And they can't grade what they can't read. And they don't have the benefit of having known you for a while. Right? So if I can read it, it doesn't matter. I'm telling you, if I've mentioned it to you before, it's going to be a problem. So work on it, right? So if you had to look at any word, literally any word, even one word, and you had to wait for a minute to figure out what it was, if you had any trouble, literally any, even a whisper of problem deciphering what they wrote, it's a two or a one on that first row. A two or a one. We're all just learning and growing, okay? Calm down. What, did my lecture do nothing for you? Yes? Oh, thank you. So if you cross something out, it's better to cross out than erase, right? Because you're going to be writing in pen. The readers are trained to just skip it. They won't even acknowledge it. So it's, it's fine to cross stuff out. That's not part of the readability issue. If you've crossed it out, they won't even consider it when they're grading. So... If something's crossed out, that does not, don't take that into account when you're talking about readability. So the next road down is conventions of standard English. What we mean by that is spelling, grammar, punctuation, conventions, just basic stuff. If they had one or two errors, it can still be a three. That's still proficient. Nobody's perfect, especially in a pressurized situation. But if they have more than three errors like that, it's got to be a two or a one because then it starts distracting from your actual meaning and that's when it will become an issue with the graders, okay? A few mistakes, not a problem. More than a few becomes a problem. And if you think there were no mistakes and you wanna give them a four, mm. <laughs> it's fine, I'll just, you know. So, then elevated formal writing style. This is where we grade, listen carefully, this is where we grade the register is the fancy word for what they're asking for, which they're saying, are you writing in a style that's appropriate for the situation? So in this situation, you're writing in strict third person. You're never, ever, ever referring to yourself or the reader with rhetorical questions. There should be no questions in your essay ever. Don't ask a question. No, no. You're just stating things as fact because it's your analysis. But you never say I, me, my opinion is, never. And then you never refer to the reader and yourself together like our society. We should do this. This should matter to all of us. 
When you're analyzing something, you're completely removed. You're not a part of the society that you're analyzing when you're in third person. So that's part of formality. Another issue with formality is contractions. Let go of your contractions now. They don't serve you. They are informal. They're a big fat no-no. No contractions. So if they have any, highlight it and make sure they know they cannot live there anymore. Uncontract the words. Instead of can't, just say cannot. Sounds better anyway. No contractions, none, zero. And then if they used any informal words when a formal word would have done better, like did they say huge instead of large or significant, right? Any chance that they could have had to replace a low-level word with a sophisticated word, they should have taken that chance. Elevated word choice is what we're looking for. So any slang, any low-level word choices, that's an issue. So give them a score on that. And if you want to write little notes within the rubric as to why you gave that score, that's helpful too. And now here's where we get into the stuff that you highlighted specifically. Defensible thesis. On these scores, on these, <clears throat> I gave you a three, a four to a one situation here, but the graders, it's a, it's a binary situation. Was the thesis defensible or not? It's one point, you either get it or you don't. But in this case, if they're close to it, they can have a three, I mean a two. If they did a good, if it's defensible, they can have a three or a four. If it's a four, it should have added in the whole, the work as a whole component, right? So a defensible thesis is Rochester is a redeemable character. That's a three. Loved it. You took a side, it's defensible, right? But a four would be Rochester is a redeemable character, and through Rochester, Bronte's message to society is that we are all redeemable. That's touching the work as a whole. That's a four. Is, you see the difference there? Okay. And then if it's not defensible, two or one. And now, the evidence. Did they have a minimum of four pieces of evidence? If they didn't finish the essay, they can't have a three here, right? The evidence here, they have a need to have a minimum of four pieces of evidence, and th that, those four pieces of evidence need to be directly applicable and supporting. They need to be obvious and good choices for supporting that. And I, hopefully I set you up with the assignment before that, so hopefully you're all getting points for that, right? Now that's separate from the, con oh, and part of this Evans row is the context part of it, the top button as well. Did they give context? Did they give a introductory phrase so they're not just dropping quotes into the beginning of a sentence? And then the commentary part is all that bottom button stuff. Did they explain how that, what that quote meant? Did they explain how it supported the paragraph topic idea, the main point? And did, it, did they explain how it supported their overall thesis? Without summarizing, without just vomiting out the same idea several times rephrased. Give them a rubric score there. And then line of reasoning, here's what we're gonna do today. There's two different definitions, well I guess not different, there's two definitions of line of reasoning. One is the super basic one, which we're gonna focus on today. 
And the second part of that description, we're going to get into in second semester because we're not even ready yet, right? But for now, line of reasoning means, and this is the first part of the definition, line of reasoning just means, did they stay on topic? Did literally every word and literally every sentence serve the thesis? There should be no tangents. There should be no summarizing. If they started summarizing the book rather than analyzing the evidence, we've got a problem. That's not a good line of reasoning. Did every single thing that they wrote, nothing was tertiary, nothing was superfluous. Did every single sentence support the thesis in some way, very clearly? If they deviated at all from supporting that thesis, their line of reasoning wasn't good. There's other more nuanced parts to that that we're going to talk about later, but we're not ready for that yet. Okay? And give them a score for that. <clears throat> and then work as a whole. If they didn't mention the work as a whole at all and they just focused the whole time on Rochester's choices, that's fine, but it's a two or a one because they didn't talk about what Bronte's choices with Rochester actually mean. What was the message, right? But if they started to mention what Bronte, how Bronte used Rochester as a choice and used his character arc as a message, that could be a three. And they could get a four in that part if they really brought it home. If they mentioned it at the beginning, they wove that thread all the way through the body, and then at the conclusion, they brought it home hard. That's a four. <clears throat> but if they only mentioned it at the end, it's fine. It's not bad, but it's not a five on, it's not a sophistication point, right? So if they only mentioned it at the end, they get a three. <clears throat> but if they wove that idea all the way through to the end, that's where we start getting to a four. And then see what you can do for the sophistication point. And again, one out of 100 essays gets the sophistication point on the AP. It's far more on AP uh, language, the nonfiction one. But on AP literature, that's why their pass rate is kind of low and why scores are technically lower. It's very hard to get a five on that test, super hard, right? Um, because that sophistication point is so elusive, it's a unicorn. We're not even going to talk about it yet. If you happen to do it, lovely. But chances are probably not, right? We're not even going to talk about it yet. It's not a priority. So remember, the grade that I'll give you for this assignment does not factor in this sophistication point. We're going to get there, but we won't start till second semester. So just, we're not even trying. We're just going for the basic structure. So here's what I need you to do, and this is going to be uncomfortable. Okay? I need you to take your paper to your friend. I need you to look in their actual face and with your actual mouth say actual things to them about what you enjoyed about their essay and about how they could improve it because remember they are going to improve it so help them you actually have to say words to them like human to human I know crazy right so go to them and have the conversations do those things you did it <laughs>